It has to be that we change our model of the drug war because if we don't do that, if we continue to use a system of punishment and a system of accountability, uh, then we aren't really addressing the underlying need and the underlying cause. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. As the COVID-19 pandemic grinds into its second year and grabs front page headlines, another epidemic rages in silence, hardly mentioned in the major media. That's the epidemic of opioid overdoses. A new study indicates that nationally, emergency department visits for opioid overdoses were up 29% in 2020, going as high as 45% higher in some months compared to the same time period uh, the year before. According to the CDC, 81,000 people died from drug overdoses in the 12-month period ending last June. That's a 20% increase and the highest number of fatal overdoses ever recorded in the U.S. in a single year. Vermont is also breaking records for overdoses. As of last November, 134 Vermonters died from overdose deaths, compared to 99 deaths in that period the year before. COVID-19 is playing a major role in this overdose crisis. Stress, isolation, and economic turmoil are all known triggers for addiction and relapse, while many treatment options and support systems have become unavailable. We're going to spend the hour this week talking about the issue of overdoses, of opioid use disorder, and of new legislation that's being considered and has just been introduced in the Vermont legislature. In our first half hour, we're joined by Brenda Siegel, a former candidate for governor and a statewide anti-poverty and opioid policy advocate, and we're joined by Attorney General T.J. Donovan. In our second half hour, we'll be joined by Jedediah Pop who is a co-director for the Wyndham County Consortium on Substance Use and a person with lived experience, as well as Representative Selena Colburn and Chittenden County State's Attorney Sarah Fair George. I'm going to begin with Brenda Siegel. Uh, Brenda, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I know that this issue, you have been a a tenacious uh, activist uh, and advocate on this issue and it's personal for you. Explain your own history uh, in your family history with opioid use disorder. Sure. Um, so when I was 19 years old, uh, which was in 1996, my brother died while using heroin. He had a four-and-a-half-year-old son. Uh, his name was Jonathan Siegel. He had a four-and-a-half-year-old son, uh, Kaya Siegel. And uh, upon his death, I started um, taking him every other weekend and once a week and con- for a while and then continued to be a huge part of his upbringing throughout his life. Uh, and um, it was March 7th of 2018 when I, as many know, decided I would run for governor. But on March 8th, so in, in one day, my life literally changed forever. My nephew, after a year in recovery, died um, of uh, died of an overdose and after seven-year battle with opioid use disorder both suffered severe trauma and mental illness and with a 20 more than 20-year gap between them the access to services for their mental illness did not exist in a way that could save their lives 
you have talked about what are you hoping to change in Vermont? And I know you've talked about the hub and spoke model, which was really hailed uh, when it was first rolled out in Vermont as a treatment option for people with substance use disorder. You say that it's failed. Why? Um, Not so much that it's failed, but that it only was able to go so far. So it reaches the people for whom it works for. And um, what's failing What's failing about it right now is that hubs are closing or don't exist. So the people for whom it might work for don't have a hub to go to. They don't have a spoke to go to. Uh, we There's an X waiver. So regular prescribers, regular primary care physicians can't easily prescribe, for example, buprenorphine. So, um, so you can't just take a different model or a different approach. Uh, and uh, according to the health department, we're reaching about three in 10 people and so that means that we haven't gone far enough. So for whom it is working, it's working, but the people for whom it's not working, we need to focus now on them and try to figure out a way to make that drive. And I would argue that with the increase in deaths that we've seen this year, um, that we need to look back at that model and see if it actually is an effective model. So we're going to hear a lot about buprenorphine or bup as people call it. So before we just plow ahead, let's make sure people understand what it is, what it's used for, and what um, are the rules surrounding who, surrounding who can prescribe it. Uh, so buprenorphine right now uh, is only prescribable. Buprenorphine is a compound that um, actually has a uh, – you can't get high on it. It only, it, you can only, it only goes uh, to a certain level. Uh, and uh, some versions of it have also an opioid blocker to prevent overdose if you use. Uh, but uh, – and I want to just say as I'm talking about this that in uh, one year there were 48 deaths that involved buprenorphine. They weren't buprenorphine alone. And in that same year, there were 54 deaths from lightning strike. So that's literally how rare it is for you to see that that happen. And it's usually more related to allergic reaction or um, a compound, um, something like that. Uh, But uh, right now, you can only prescribe it if you register with the DEA and doctors have to take an eight-hour training and um, nurse practitioners and uh, and others have to take a 24- or 48-hour training, and you have to fill out a ton of paperwork just to be a prescriber. And that contributes not only to the difficulty to being a prescriber, but also to the stigma about being a prescriber, because it basically says you don't have to do the same thing to, to, um, to prescribe an opioid. So it basically says that's not acceptable. Hmm. Let's turn to uh, Vermont Attorney General T.J. Donovan, um, TJ, you've come up through the system as a state's attorney in Chittenden County. You've prosecuted your share of drug cases, and, and I guess the war on drugs was probably a big feature of your life growing up and your early prosecutorial life. What's changed for you in your thinking about the drug crisis? Well, David, thanks for having me on. Um, I think the criminal justice system has evolved greatly. Um, over the last decade or so. Um, and for me, um, it's just been a continuation of trying to put people first and understanding that addiction uh, is a disease. And it really was, for me, kind of just being in court every day and that old definition of insanity, uh, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And you see the same issues come into uh, the courthouse, uh, whether uh, it was 
uh, in Philadelphia where I started my career or up in Burlington uh, where I was state's attorney. Uh, issues of addiction, issues of mental illness, issues of poverty, uh, issues of uh, how, uh, lack of housing, issues of uh, lack of education, of, of joblessness. And the criminal justice system is not designed to address those issues. And putting somebody in a jail cell or sentencing them to a term of probation does not work. And so we, I think, as a state, have been on this journey um, for at least a decade about how do we create a system that is uh, guided by public health strategies that is only going to enhance our public safety. A healthy community is a safe community. And what that means in the criminal justice system for me is really front-loading the entire system, creating community justice through our community justice centers, taking things out of the criminal justice system. And as I look at the criminal justice system, or jail for that matter, I look at it as a highway. On the highway to jail, it, we should have exit ramps every step of the way, keeping people out of our system. We need our traditional criminal justice system because there are cases, there are people who are dangerous, and public safety is a foundation of government. That is a small percentage. So how do we create a system that is uh, community-based, uh, guided by public health strategies, uh, that is linked to our public health system, as Brenda has talked about, and meets people where, that, where they're at? Now, that's a remarkable statement in a system that's based on judgment, to meet people where they're at. But that is a understanding, I think, of, uh, of addiction. And we're, we certainly have not mastered that. Uh, but we have come a long way, and we still have a long way to go. Now, <clears throat> previously, meeting people where they're at, somebody who is uh, using, you know, so-called illegal substances, uh, you know, meeting them where they're at, that's generally that meeting takes place in a jail cell. What does it look like? What would look different in the kind of system, the public health-based system that you're talking about? Well, and Brenda can jump in on this. I mean, I, I think that what it looks like for me is not waiting for the criminal justice system to get involved, not waiting for the police to respond, but having community health and public health um, uh, resources and centers available in your community where you can go talk to somebody or get a doctor where you can get a prescription or you can walk into a peer recovery center to get that help you need because you may, because 12, a 12 step program may work for you. So, first of all, it's about having the resources in the community and breaking down those barriers to healthcare. Insurance is a big one. Brenda and I talked about that earlier today. Mm -hmm. uh, so, if you need residential treatment, you can get the help you need. Mental health treatment is a big part of it, too. But in the criminal justice system, what that means is this since I was Attorney General, we've tried to work on this issue of geographic injustice. Uh, in our state. Really, we have 14 different counties of, of justice based on our county system of government. You have locally elected state's attorneys, and there is not a lot of consistency. And you may be treated one way in, in Burlington, you may be treated a different way in Bennington. And so what we did, because the Attorney General has what's called statewide concurrent jurisdiction, is uh, we, we have developed our diversion program and implemented that in every county in our state. So we have three different 
diversion programs based on risk, based on need, that is on the front end of the system. Typical diversion program where maybe a young kid who gets into trouble, we want to keep him or her out of the system. Our TAMRAC program, which addresses those issues of uh, uh, health, of addiction and mental illness by linking uh, people with those resources in the community. And what's called pretrial services uh, for those with more acute needs during the pendency of the case. There's a structural problem, though, David, in, in our Vermont system that I think needs to change. The Department of Corrections is part of the AHS. And the Department of Corrections, which is not only jail, but more importantly, probation, um, only gets involved at the conclusion of a case when somebody has been adjudicated. Hey, listen, when somebody's struggling with addiction, the need is immediate. It's not nine months down the road after the case is concluded. We really have to, again, front-load services, community-based. And we talk about reentry in this state. Let me tell you, we spend way too much money uh, on jails. Okay, We spend more money on locking people up in this state than we do on higher education. I don't think that's a priority anybody supports. If we front-load the services, when we talk about housing, when we talk about health care, when we talk about education, when we talk about anti-poverty work, that is still reentry work. It's going to be far cheaper, more effective. We can reduce incarceration and enhance our public safety and save money. Brenda, you've been an advocate for harm reduction. Explain what that is. Right. So, I mean, part of that is meeting people where they're at, like we were just talking about. So if you think about, um, you know, in our family, we couldn't find a prescriber for buprenorphine. And there were times when my nephew, in order for him to get into a detox treatment, he had to have actively been using heroin. Like we had to, we, we were put in very awful positions where that was the only way that he could access treatment. And um, and we would go through that process over and over again. And we're a big family and we would take turns trying to take care of him um, and help him through this. And we, we failed. And so when we're talking about harm reduction, when he was using, the goal had to be to continue to love him, to continue to understand that he had compa- that we had to have compassion for him, and to make sure that he, as best we could, we could keep him safely housed, that we could make sure that he was using clean needles so that he would not end up with hepatitis C or HIV, um, to make sure, and or infections that um, actually end up costing our state quite a lot of money because um, people need to get heart valve replacements. Uh, and we, it also means uh, making sure that we aren't criminalizing be- the behavior and instead figuring out how do we keep this person alive until they are able to access recovery, whether it's a systemic barrier or their own mental health that needs to be treated. And so when we're looking at harm reduction, we talked about it earlier, uh, we're talking about fentanyl testing strips, we're talking about syringe services, we're talking about low-barrier buprenorphine and overdose prevention sites. But we're also talking about, as TJ said, making sure that we're getting access to health care in the community. Because when people are accessing, like at Safe Recovery in Burlington, which is an excellent model, those kind of services, they are communicating with people who, when they are ready, they can lead them to a recovery path. It, that way, they already have that access. They already have that connection. And so... It, it is an essential part of getting people to the place where they recover is to meet them where they are while they're still using. TJ Donovan, some some of these harm reduction initiatives 
Um, you have, uh, well, let me, let me get you to just say where you're at on things like needle exchange, safe injection sites, uh, and ultimately drug decriminalization. Sure. Uh, totally support needle exchange and support. It just makes sense. Uh, look, some, some people are, are going to use drugs. We know that. So how do we reduce the harm to them and to the community uh, by making it the safest way possible. I think the needle exchange, which there are throughout the state, uh, makes some safe recovery in Burlington is one such program, and it's a wonderful program, and I fully support it. Uh, regarding safe injection sites, I'm open to the idea. Uh, I think that now with the change in administrations, I think you're going to have a little bit more um, uh, support uh, to pursue that. I think the most important person or institution in that debate, David, is the Department of Justice, the federal Department of Justice, and the local U.S. attorney, uh, because the issue is not the person uh, using the drugs. It's, well, who's the landlord? Who's the insurance underwriter? And is the federal government going to come in and seize the property and forfeit the property because it's illegal under federal law? Th- those are the nitty-gritty questions that, frankly, need to be asked in order to get things done. Um, in order to move that forward. As to de- decrim of all drugs, I don't support that. Um, you know, as I, Brenda and I talked earlier, I'm always willing to listen. Uh, but I don't, I struggle with the idea that heroin, there would not be a penalty attached to, to heroin. And I just, I don't support the, de- the decrim of all drugs. Are there some drugs you believe should be decriminalized? I think we have it. We have marijuana. You have alcohol. Um, and that's, so I think we have that. I, I, I just, philosophically, um, I would struggle with, with trying to understand um, how heroin, uh, how the public safety or the public health would be improved by the decriminalization of heroin. Um, and so, I think we have to, as a parent, that's something that I'm concerned about. Um, obviously, as, as a law enforcement official, that's something I'm concerned about. But I also know this, that we should be guided by science. We should be guided by data. Uh, and we shouldn't be afraid to have these tough conversations um, as we continue to evolve uh, but today, I can't say that I'd be supportive of, of de- uh, decriminalizing all drugs. You have also evolved your views on, on marijuana uh, and the sales, uh, you know, legalizing the sale of marijuana has, has also evolved. Can you just explain where you've come from and where you are now on that and what you're seeing are the results of Vermont's changing laws around this? Sure. Um, I think I was one of the first to come out for decriminalizing uh, marijuana because one of the issues, and I think you could see this, frankly, uh, with other drugs, is you had disparate treatment uh, of people in different counties uh, based on, when I was state's attorney, we never really prosecuted marijuana. Uh, It was always diverted. In other counties, you would be prosecuted. And so you had similarly situated people being being treated differently based on where they live. And with that conviction carried a lot of consequences. Biggest one would be you'd be ineligible for federal student loans. And so I thought decriminalization made sense. I thought uh, then the legalization of of possession made sense. Um, And once we did that, 
Once we did that, uh, we had to go to a fully regulated market because what I saw, again, as a law enforcement official, uh, saw that you can't tell Vermonters that you can legally possess something and be absolutely silent on how they obtain it. It's not good for public safety. Frankly, it's not good for consumer protection. It's not good for children. So that regulated system uh, with, the, with those consumer protections in place made sense. Now, whether or not that framework uh, is, is perhaps the template for other things, we'll see. It, it, but I think that's good, a good example, uh, Dave, of, of my evolution. But it's going to be based for me on, uh, as we said, kind of the science, the data, and how it's impacting uh, regular Vermonters uh, on a day-to-day basis and making sure that people are safe and making sure people are healthy and people understand what they're putting in their bodies. Brenda Siegel, we began this conversation talking about the record number of overdoses and overdose deaths uh, in the last year. What do you think would most affect that situation and help stop this overdose epidemic? Uh, You know, I really think that, well, for one thing, some of the bills that we put forth today, like decrim of bup, which is TJ is in support of, uh, and uh, and several of the bills that lower the barriers to treatment uh, and that change the way we deal with address uh, arrest warrants. But also, it has to be that we that we change our model of the drug war. It has to be that we follow the science, as we've been talking about so much today, um, because. If we don't do that, if we continue to use a system of punishment and a system of accountability, uh, then we aren't really addressing the underlying need and the underlying cause. If we don't address, um, if we don't save people's lives, then we create intergenerational trauma, as my family saw. And so that's really what we have to do. I wanted to just jump back and say um, on decriminalization that. Oregon has a model now that has some really good data and research behind it. And what I appreciate about Attorney General Donovan is that he's willing to continue to have these conversations and look at this model and be open to um, to why people are looking at a different model. Uh, because I think that's just is a really important conversation, and we have to not be afraid uh, to disagree and to and to talk about it and to talk about it publicly. And so that's just something that I'm really appreciating right now. Uh, and it's going to take exactly that kind of modeling where we put people first and also really listen. In the next half hour, you'll have someone lived experience. Really listen to people who are in recovery, who have been through this system. If they, they have to be the first people we listen to. They have to, that priority has to be there. And then we have to make sure that we are, the backup is coming from science and data and the backup is coming from other officials. But if we don't put them first, then we're never going to get there because they are the ones, just like in other marginalized communities, they are the ones who understand the problem and understand what they were missing when they couldn't get there or when they're actively right now can't get there. Okay, well, Brenda Siegel uh, and TJ Donovan, I want to thank you for joining us on this half hour of the Vermont Conversation. Dave, thanks for having us. Thank you so much. 
Okay. Uh, T.J. Donovan is the Attorney General of Vermont, and Brenda Siegel is a statewide anti-poverty and opioid policy advocate and a former candidate for governor. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to speak with somebody who is in recovery from substance use disorder, as well as Representative Selena Colburn and Sarah Fair George, the Chittenden County State's Attorney. Uh, Stay tuned. Uh, We'll be back in just a minute. Hi, I'm Ellie French. I'm a reporter with VT Dicker. I know we publish a lot of news every day, and it can be hard to keep up. So I produce a daily audio digest of four or five key stories that you can hear wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for Vermont News and subscribe, and you'll hear a new roundup every weekday around 5 p.m. One more time, that's Vermont News, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're already a subscriber, thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. We're continuing our conversation about what has become a silent epidemic behind the COVID-19 pandemic, and that is the epidemic of overdoses. Last year, opioid overdoses were up over 29%, and in Vermont, uh, a record was broken when, as of November, 134 Vermonters died from overdose deaths. Uh, compared to just 99 deaths in the period uh, previous to that. And I shouldn't say just 99 deaths. These are all pretty staggering numbers. In this half hour, we're going to begin by talking with Jedediah Pop. He is co-director for the Wyndham County Consortium on Substance Use, and he's a person with lived experience of substance use disorder. Uh, Welcome to the Vermont Conversation, Jedediah. Thank you very much for having me, David. Much appreciated to to be here with you talking about this today. Um, you know, it's it's so important to hear from people with lived experience. Um, can you just talk about your own experience with substance use disorder, um, how it happened, and how you have managed to work your way into recovery? Sure. Um, to keep it short, because that's a very, very long story if I talk about all of it. I think um, my my child my experiences of childhood trauma um, I think are were the biggest factor in me um, continuing to use substances. I think you know one thing that I experienced in high school was there was a lot of people who kind of uh, experimented with substances and some people it's just a part of, it's just a part of high school and college and they're able to walk away from that while others, it's not so much uh, the case. And for me, it was, you know, the moment that I, you know, tried that first beer, drank that first beer, the moment I, I, tried cannabis, um, you know, it, it completely, it completely changed my life. It, it, it kind of alleviated a lot of the, the depression and anxiety I was feeling back in those days. Um, and I think those, I don't think those experiences led me to other substances, but at the point in my life when, um, substances like 
uh, cocaine and crack and heroin came. Um, each of those um, brought some new uh, enlightenment into my life and completely uh, alleviated all of the struggles, you know, those mental health issues and trauma that I had been living with. And um, once, you know, once I was experiencing that, the benefits from that, it was very hard to step away from that. And um, so that, and that's how my life was for years. Um, over 10 years, I uh, struggled with, with opiate use. Um, ultimately, um, yeah, loosened everything that I had. Um, losing housing, um, losing uh, uh, a long relationship with my partner at the time, a lot of my friendships, and um, was was homeless, and and it's and that was that was difficult. Um, that that being homeless, um, and. Uh, while still experiencing substance use, active substance use, um, it, it was quite the challenge um, to, to, to manage daily life. Um, I'm sure people can imagine when, when there's no hope in, in one's life where, you know, thoughts go with, with that. And um, in my experiences of, of substance use in my active years, um, I overdosed many times. I, I um, was brought back with Narcan. Uh, I went to jail, um, just a small small amount of time in jail, but enough for me. Um, many legal issues that, that I'm still uh, working through today. Um, and, yeah, I think that once I finally decided to stop, um, it, 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 it was really challenging. It, it, I was, I was dealing with homelessness. I was dealing with, um, other basic needs not being met. And on top of that, having to develop a, a recovery, um, system that worked well for me, uh, was, was time consuming, exhausting, um, and yeah, and having to face that trauma, uh, having to face um, that depression and anxiety, uh, and that was that was a, the better part of five years it took um, to get through to get through those uh, those past experiences and current experiences. Um, and all of that work that I did kind of led me um, into the work that I'm doing today. Um, well, first of all, thank you for sharing what sounds like an incredibly painful story, but one that you also had a lot of tenacity and courage to keep pushing through. And I'm wondering what was ultimately the tipping point, uh, the thing that enabled you to get into recovery and stay in recovery as long as you have? That's a, that's a really good question, David, and, and one that I've been asked a lot, and I think 
Um, I think that that the answer itself doesn't change, um, but the way that I um, communicate it does um, over these past uh, nine years. Um, I think that uh, for for a long period of time, um, you know, for probably four years, um, the like the end years of my active use, um, I was lacking connection. Um, I had a um, a partner who who really cared about me, um, but at that point. Um, when things really started to fall apart, uh, she kind of had to step away. Um, so when, when I finally made my way over to Brattleboro in 2012, um, I think those connections that I built, uh, with service providers, with my peers, um, I think that I, it, it's very difficult to say, you know, what exactly brought me to that point. Um, if I had to pinpoint one thing, it was hope. Um, there really wasn't, like, I think there could have been many, many things that people did and said along the way that contributed to that hope. But really what made me... Um, really feel that was uh, the connections that I built in those early um, days of recovery and also um, yeah the, the, the people believing in me um, and I, I really think hope alone um, I think it, it, it definitely got me through that time period um, of when I didn't have any connections, but it, it really was those connections um, that really um, transformed my life. Um, and uh, I, I want to say it takes a community um, to, to bring somebody um, out of, uh, to assist somebody out of active use and, and into recovery. How does your own experience inform the kind of things that you both advocate for now and also how you talk to people who are in active uh, stages of substance use disorder? Um, I think that the, I think being able to articulate my, my lived experiences, um, is I for me like a big part of what I do. Um, I think looking back, um, looking back over the years and looking back at um, when I was actively using, um, there were, I definitely had experiences where um, I thought that you know, well, if people did this, um, if people you know, provided me this service or if people treated me this way, um, there's that possibility that I could have, um, you know, cut off two, four, 
six years of of those um, active those active years. Um, you know, and and when when I think about harm reduction now, those are the thoughts that come through my head. Is you know how you know what would have helped me? What was helpful to to me back when I was actively using? Um, and 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 I feel like that's so much of what I do today is is harm reduction. I mean, the 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 Wyndham County Consortium on Substance Use. A lot of what we do. Um, and what our efforts are geared towards is harm reduction as well as prevention, treatment, and recovery. Um, but it, 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 those, those basic principles of harm reduction of, of meeting people where they're at, treating people with dignity and respect, making sure that they have their basic needs met, um, help, helping people reduce, um, the harm that's caused by drug, drug use, um, and uh and just knowing that that's possible um i think that that's when i when i advocate um i found myself like those first few years i was in recovery i was advocating for recovery and i was advocating for recovery services and recovery is very very important um but when i think about the stages of change um you know, when I think about pre-contemplation, which is a person who isn't thinking about stopping their use, and then contemplation where a person is like, well, I need to stop, but there's this, this, and this. Um, and then the next stage is action, where they're taking action, and the next stage is maintenance. Um, and when I think about those, the stages of change, um I, I I really think that there should be services and resources for every stage of change. Um, so recovery is very important, and I feel like we have a very robust recovery um, network in Vermont, which I'm super grateful for. But as I got further into my recovery, I began to see that there was only a certain amount of people in recovery that lived with substance use and there was all these other people that were in pre-contemplation and contemplation where um, their their needs weren't getting met Um, we put a lot of value on people in recovery and what i see that doing is is devaluing the people who are in those other stages of change Um, so that's where a lot of my advocacy lies. And I tried to find some data before I came on to talk to you, David, and I found some data from 2017 um, from, uh, I think, Addictions uh, Statistics, the American Addiction Centers. And, you know, in 2017, only um, 19% of people living with a substance use disorder were actually getting treatment for that. And I feel like that that the people in recovery um, could be even lower than that. I would assume um, I am not good at data <laughs> or researching, so don't hold me to that. Um, so that makes me look at where can our and where can my efforts be best used. Um 
and I look at the people who are in their active use, um, and I look at the, those folks um, as the ones who need who need the most support, who need love, who need dignity, who need respect, um, who need their basic needs being met, um, and and it, it's in in Brattleboro and in Wyndham County. Um, this past year with, with the emergency housing, um, our overdose deaths have actually decreased. And that's like a big part into our housing um, organization down here. And what they're doing is providing a lot of harm reduction to the people who live with substance use. They're there to provide people with support and resources when they need it. Um, and, uh, and, and it's just, a, it's, it's a great thing to see. Um, and I spent some, I spent a few months over there at the emergency house and through my last position. Um, and what they're doing is phenomenal. Um, so I think, you know, when I outreach people, when I talk to people who are active in their use, um, you know, what I do is I treat them with dignity. I meet them where they're at. Um, and I don't try to push them along to recovery. Um, I think motivational interviewing is great, um, and, and it's definitely a skill that really helps people, um, can help people make those decisions for change in their life, uh, but really it's just being human with people um, and, and not judging them on on. The, this disorder that they live with and knowing that that disorder that they live with, there's a reason for that. There's past trauma that um, a lot of people carry around that takes a lot of work to get through. Um, and, and I know that, um, and I'm a white male. Um, and so people from different, you know, this is where like racism comes in. This is where class comes in, poverty um, people from marginalized communities have a much more difficult time accessing um, these services. Um, so, so it was. I, I think it was hard for me, but then I think about like what other people have to go through, um, and uh, and that's something that I'm always aware of now when I'm talking with people. Okay. Well, Jedediah, uh, Pop, I really thank you so much for sharing that story. Um, I want to turn to Sarah Fair George, the Chittenden County State's Attorney. Um, Sarah, I'm just curious, you know, as somebody who is interacting with people with substance abuse or substance use disorder in a court legal setting, what is your reaction to Jedediah's story, the, the journey that he described, his own journey? Hi, thank you, David. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay, great. Um, well, first of all, I want to thank Jedediah for telling that story, and um, I'm sure he will not be surprised that his story is not unique. I think that most of the people that I have the opportunity to really talk to about how they you know, came to use drugs have a very similar story. It almost always originates from some some sense of trauma or experience with trauma at, at a young age or being a victim of violence at a young age or sometimes both. 
and they use um, the drugs in order to cope or to um, cover the trauma. And it's it's rarely about, um, you know, how people just sort of think that you want to use drugs. That's, that's actually very rarely the story. And, you know, what I think is, is the most important aspect of his story when you asked what it was that finally worked, although it is hard to peg that down, I think, for a lot of people, most say the same thing, that what worked was their connections to providers that they trusted, to healthy peers, um, and to hope, to have somebody believing in them. And I have to tell you that none of those are things that the criminal legal system supply. Um, and so when we talk about criminalizing drug use, you will you are hard-pressed to find somebody who says they stopped using drugs because of criminal legal system intervention. It is usually that they stop because of things completely unrelated to arrest or incarceration or, frankly, even the forced treatment that we can sometimes require through the system. So, um, no, his, his story is not unique, and it's, it's something that a lot of people in our country and a lot of people in Vermont are dealing with, and they are not getting the support that they need because our, our criminal legal system is, is often getting in the way. Where do you stand on decriminalizing ju- drugs? I support the decriminalization um, of drugs. I think when I first heard about Portugal decriminalizing drugs back in 2001, um, I did a ton of research around their, you know, their support for it and their data and research since. And again, it, it, for some reason in the United States, we, we can read a lot of research that says that something works and yet we keep doing the same thing over and over again when we don't have any evidence that what we're doing works. And in, in fact, we have the opposite. Um, drug prohibition has utterly failed in this country. Um, in 1971, I think, is when Nixon declared the drugs, you know, the, the war on drugs, and it has never worked, and we continue to do it. And, um, you know, criminalizing drugs doesn't prevent drug use. Um, decriminalizing it doesn't increase drug use. That is very clear from Portugal, and now Oregon um, is the first in the U.S. to be doing it. And I think that Vermont, Vermont is behind. You know, a lot of the country is behind in this. Uh, it's there's a lot better use of that money that we could use in Vermont, especially now. And like most things, it targets people of color. So I fully support it. I think that um, we need to stop just talking about it. There's ample evidence and research to suggest that it works. Um, well, we have just a minute, a couple minutes left. I, we've got uh, Representative Selena Colburn on the line. Um, Representative Colburn, can you just uh, give us a synopsis of the new legislation being proposed to deal with the overdose crisis and other aspects of, uh, of what's going on with substance use disorder? Uh, absolutely. I can highlight some things. And, um, you know, the, I think one thing I'll note is that a lot of this legislation actually is not new. It's legislation that myself and others um, have introduced more than once to try to move forward some of these harm reduction approaches. And I really appreciated what Jedediah said in his story about really trying to find people when they're in spaces of change and not devaluing their experience and how that can, you know, boost 
um, people's recovery experience by two years, four years, six years potentially. So some of the um, policies that I and others are looking at that um, that might do that are absolutely uh, looking at decriminalization of drugs, looking, continuing to push for the decriminalization of small possession amounts of non-prescribed buprenorphine, which we there's a whole body of scientific literature that shows that folks use that to self-medicate effectively and, in fact, actually that it's a, a common pathway to treatment and that people do better in treatment when they have first experienced non-prescribed buprenorphine use. Um, so things like safe consumption sites um, or overdose prevention sites, as they're sometimes called. I think in Vermont we need to look at the question of who can host a syringe exchange. Right now that's very limited to medical providers and HIV providers. I think things like low-barrier homeless shelters might be, we might want to expand that, um, ensuring further distribution of Narcan and testing strips so folks can test for the presence of fentanyl in drugs that they're using. And one of the things I'm really pushing um, this year with my co- working on many of these things with my colleague, Representative Emily Kornheiser, and um, I'm pushing us to study what happens in our system when someone relapses. We're going to have to, I'm afraid we're out of time. Uh, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, but I want to thank all three of you. Jedediah Pop from the Wyndham County Consortium on Substance Use, Representative Selena Colburn, and Sarah Fair George, the Chittenden County State's Attorney. I want to thank all three of you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation this week. Thanks very much. Thanks uh, for having us, David. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this in all shows at vtdigger.org slash Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.